You've come to the right place. It's the Smart Driving Cars podcast. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi, Alan. Uh, Good evening, Fred. Good evening. And we are very happy to have joining us once again, the publisher of The Dispatcher, based in Sweden, Michael Senna. Thanks for being here again, Michael. My pleasure. Good to hear you. Great to have you, Michael. Thank you. In the April edition of The Dispatcher, you take a look at the Symposium on the Future Networked Car, which took place earlier in March at the Geneva International Motor Show. There were multiple sessions, the first titled Connected and Automated Vehicles at the Crossroads to Success. What should our listeners know about some of the key points there? Uh, well, the, the main point was that, that uh, there was one person on the on the uh, on the panel who was defending uh, the honor of um, the 802.11p DSRC vehicle-to-vehicle uh, communication of some the person from uh, from Volkswagen, and the rest of the panel were. Uh, Pretty much in favor of the of the alternative, which is cellular cellular V2I. It was a, it was a good discussion. Um, the points that were made in favor of um, of the DSRC solution principally came down to it's done. We have a standard. Uh, we can do it now. We don't have to wait for another year until everything is is standardized with uh, with the um, with cellular V2I, um, and um, it's free. So let's let's get started with it. The uh, that panel was led by, uh, moderated by Russ Shields, who has been a a, uh, a staunch advocate of the cellular approach, and a staunch apo- opponent of the uh, of the Wi-Fi based approach. Uh, it was a lively discussion, and um, you know, I'm I'm not really sure that that. Uh, the rest of the panel actually, uh, in terms of the arguments, uh, came out um, on top because there are a number of, of companies, uh, not the least of which are, are the two largest uh, automobile companies, Toyota and Volkswagen, who decided to move ahead with um, with the um, Wi-Fi uh, ITS G5 here in Europe and, and WAVE in, uh, in the United States uh, approach to V2X. What, what did you think, Alan? You listening to the to that debate, that discussion? It, it, it amazes me we're still having the discussion. I'm, I'm, I'm I was surprised at the uh, Volkswagen, um, uh, you know, s- uh, sitting there and uh, continuing to argue for the DSRC. And um, I, I don't know. I, th- I I guess my opinion is I think they've I think they've lost and and um, and. Um, and that that it's time to move on. Yeah. Well, I'm not. I, I I really don't know how this is going to work with them making a decision to go ahead with Toyota doing the same. I'm, I'm sure that that you know, by the time the uh, cellular V2 V2X V2I come comes on board in let's say a year's time, uh, we're moving closer to uh, to 5G. We have some implementations of the of the first. The, the first phase of, of uh, 5G, um, you know, it, it'll be overtaken. But it, it, it's just a pity that people are going to be wasting money putting this 
in vehicles and we'll have two two options out there and um uh, I just don't I don't know. I, I think that there there are enough there's one country that I know in, in last year's discussion, Austria said we're going to put this in into our infrastructure. So on all of uh, all of the highways that are run by the by the uh, by the state, the toll roads, they're going to, they're putting in the this DSRC based solution. Uh, the Netherlands is, has also decided that they're going to be doing uh, something similar. So there are, there seem to be enough uh, organizations from the from the government to the private sector who are doing this because they feel that there's uh, you know, that there's enough reason to save lives in the in the short term. Uh, but if it's like clapping clapping with one hand, if if you if you have this solution, you can't communicate with someone who doesn't, and um, so. Um, it's going to be just. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in the next two years, before the the cellular solutions start to come online. Right, and and I guess uh, the the issue with the SRC is that the infrastructure needs to put in uh, the, its own communication system that is used by nothing else but these vehicle the vehicles for um, this uh, these uh, safety issues and. Uh, right. And, and uh, but if one goes to the cellular, then the cellular is being used by everybody else. In a sense, it's being paid for by everybody else. And um, and while a few motorways might, in fact, uh, install the DSRC, uh, I just it's uh, the opportunities to have it installed anywhere else is 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 essentially close to zero. So. Um, I don't think it has a, it has a chance to to scale, and if this doesn't scale, then it's it's going to be useless, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. So, um, the the original argument in favor of it was the same, exactly the same argument that was used for the European e-call. If you don't, it initially with the, with the the first design, it didn't require a SIM card. You needed a modem in the car, but it, it to dial one one two, but you didn't need to have a SIM card. Then, as they progressed through the, the standards during the twelve years that they were working on it, um, they found that if if you don't have a SIM card, you can't call back. And if if the if the line breaks, if something occurs, which of course may occur, and when you have a, a crash, it's it's worthless because you can't call back to the to the um, to the modem in the car. So once they made that decision, you needed to have a, a, an IMSI, and then you you had to have a SIM card in the in the vehicle. Uh, so you may not pay for a phone call. Somebody pays one one two. The you know the the networks the mobile network operators pay for that one one two call. The, the the person making it doesn't, but. Uh, it was the same with with DSRC. They said, "Well, this is free. You don't need to have a modem. It's Wi-Fi. You put the you put the hardware in the vehicle, and you, know, you just you go ahead and, and use it." Um, but it's the same. They have with cellular V2 V2X. They, it's equivalent in terms of the solution. You don't you have a short range without necessarily having to go into the cellular network to be able to communicate. And so that that advantage disappeared. Um, I, I think people were just were just so frustrated after having worked on on the standard for so long, and principally the, the people in IEEE, that uh, they said we, we don't care. You know, we're we're going we want to move forward with this, and we want to 
put it in as quickly as possible because it's going to save lives. So that's that's what's happening. Interesting. The second section sounds like it was related in, in some ways uh, to the first, focused on cybersecurity and automotive systems. Yeah, well, I have the, I have the, uh, the, the privilege of, of having a, 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 um, a group who really all of them on the panel uh, were experts in one way or another in, in, in this whole issue. And um, I think that the takeaway there was, Somebody asked the question. You know, it sounds hopeless. You know, we we don't have with our with our PCs and their phones. Everything is being hacked. We we you know is is this going to be the case with cars? If if everything is connected, is the opportunity there to 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 do exactly the same thing that's being done with our PCs? And pretty much everyone said the same thing. And although it sounds hopeless. Uh, there are enough people working on this right now in, in, uh, in standards, not the least of which are, are in, the, in the ITU uh, standards organization, uh, this working party 29. And um, you know, they're, 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 they, I know they're working diligently at, at this because I started working with, with the ITU about four years ago with the, with a report that I did on this, on the subject. Um, and, you know, we haven't had those kinds of events far, and um, yeah, everyone pretty much said it, it's something may happen, but the likelihood is is much less if we do what should be done, which is security by design, end to end, end to end security, uh, with all the acknowledgments that are necessary, and and, and to really design this in um, and to make sure that the communication. That's that's dealing with the onboard systems that steer, that brake, um, are securely behind enough um, 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 firewalls to to make sure that you don't uh, you don't get in you can't get at them. And if you do, you get at one car and not at not at thousands or millions of cars that are all connected to the same uh, the same communication network. So. I mean, I felt we we are making progress in this area, and the difference between the the whole this, the V2X, there aren't multiple camps. There aren't people who are working across purposes. There there are lots of people who are working on on all of the components that are necessary for uh, for having a secure communication and connectivity with the, with the vehicle. Yeah, I, I agree with respect to the cybersecurity. I think everybody is working um, to the same goal and to the same end, and and everybody is sort of, is supporting themselves, and and there aren't these cross purposes. And then also with respect to to the whole attack problem, you know, uh, uh, the whole transportation system is very susceptible to. Uh, 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 to hacking uh, that is uh, non-digital in nature. I mean, you know, we uh, how often do we have car bombs going off in markets around the world where, you know, they're good old humans driving the darn things? And I don't know that, you know, if, for those who really want to cause that kind of harm, I just I just don't don't see them going uh, the digital route. Um, it's too easy to recruit just a just a suicide uh, bomber to, to go uh, power one of these things. Um, you take even the, the World Trade Center um, uh, 
bombing in the basement. You know, it's some guy driving a driving a a, a van uh, full of explosives or full of whatever and going in there. So I think I think yes, the cybersecurity issue is 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 an issue, but but I think security of of our our transport systems uh, from just um, human inter- intervention probably is still a, a bigger problem than the than the cybersecurity problem. Yeah, I agree. The third session was titled "Automated Capabilities and AI in the Vehicle: Status and Expectations." And Alan, uh, you were a party to that. Uh, yes, I was a party, but um, um, yes, and it was an interesting discussion with respect to to all that. I think um, you know, as as I'm as I continue to evolve on that, I I think that uh, that that is st- remains a still valuable part of the uh, of the technological evolution for us to get to a point, at least in in some. Uh, domains where we can offer rides um, uh, uh, completely from origin to destination um, using um, using technology instead of a driver, <clears throat> and of course, um, you know the, where I'm evolving on that is is a fleet operation and focused on um, uh, those uh, the mobility disadvantage because that's where uh, this kind of uh, as I call them mobility machines. Uh, can actually go out and deliver mobility uh, to those who can benefit most uh, by having that mobility offered to them, and I think uh, with that as a focus, and to do it in the in the uh, um, uh, smaller domains of of where it's valuable um, to that population, um, and at a scale that that's the scale of that population is a, is a really good way for us to get started and and to continue to to uh, to provide and and have the opportunity to provide enormous value to society. So uh, that's where I've got myself completely focused on. I felt kind of funny at the Geneva Auto Show with all the money that's sitting there, you know, talking about uh, trying to provide mobility to the poor. I thought I was afraid of maybe getting stoned or something. I don't know. <laughs> Everybody treated me well, uh, but yeah. I, I don't think I don't think a lot of the people at the at the Geneva Auto Show uh, uh, think too often about the poor <laughs> no. and, and their mobility uh, needs. So, Michael, what yeah. what are your thoughts? <laughs> Well, one well, the main thought that I that I had on the session, I mean, Roger is a, a, a fantastic moderator. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, but I I really don't feel that the session actually got to the point of AI. I mean, there were there were a lot yeah. of points made on on you know should we have a ton of self driving vehicles and if you know if we do how should they be used? But you know we as I said in in, uh, in the newsletter the. The question that comes down to whether the robots driving vehicle are using neural networks, deep learning, or machine learning to perform the driving task, no, no one was really picking up on this issue. So the the point of the of the of the session, um, you know, I say collective, not I alone. I mean, I, I got this idea from the Economist some some months ago that the, the whole idea of using artificial intelligence i think is is a misnomer i mean the artificial intelligence is based on the collective that we're providing tons and tons of data 
that's being processed and, and then fed into computers that are that are that are, are working in so-called in an intelligent way. Um, we really didn't get into that in in the discussion. So I, I think for next year, um, I'm going to try to emphasize on the program committee that uh, we really should try to focus on that particular issue because I, I think you know, in the end, it's a really it's something that we really need to discuss. On both sides, I mean, I, I really I feel strongly that we have to have both sides of this discussion going on. Um, I read in the newspaper, um, I think it was this morning or, or maybe yesterday, a plane left London City Airport for Dusseldorf, and when it landed, and the, uh, the came over announcement came over, "Welcome to Edinburgh." Um, the plane had had been, been redirected in the air. Um, I guess the pilots were doing something else and not looking at the at the compass because you know flying directly east to get to Dusseldorf and flying directly north to get to to Edinburgh are two very different things. But apparently nobody nobody understood that the, the plane was going to someplace completely different, almost the same distance. Um, and then the pilot came on and said, "You know, we know that you'd like you wanted to go to, to Dusseldorf, but is there anybody here who'd like to, you know, to get off and go to Edinburgh <laughs> instead?" And it's like, okay, so someone's some some intelligence took that plane and did something that absolutely no one on the plane, pilots, crew, or or passengers had any idea of. Um, I mean, I, I I can call that artificial intelligence because it, it's it was definitely not real experience. But I think we need to we need to address this issue, and and, and uh, you know I'm I'm hoping that we see a little bit more on the on the on both sides that it's good, it's bad, and let's discuss what what you know what if it's bad, what how to make it good, and if it's good, how to make it better. Well, it's it's a really deep question, and uh, uh, please send me the link to that because I want to put that in the Smart Driving Car newsletter. But uh, okay. still, on, still on on the AI piece, I, I had the pleasure this this morning of of spending uh, two hours and basically in the, the kitchen of, of John Hopfield, who's I guess one of the fathers of uh, of um, uh, neural networks and so on, and mm-hmm. basically. Our discussion was was totally focused, the two of us, on on adversarial issues and really trying to understand what's going on in in in, in some of these um, you know constructs of deep learning and so on, and uh, that are that are um, you know data dependent yet exhibit some really. Uh, um, uh, I, I would call, um, I guess, uh, chilling situations where you, as I like to put it, you have a very small tail wa- wagging a very big dog and yeah. where, you know, very, very small changes in the input d- uh, data all of a sudden uh, gives you completely different answers. Now, you know, as humans, we, we understand that, that in fact, uh, uh, there can be illusions. Um, you know, Escher ma- made a living off of it, um, uh, and 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 so that we don't know whether or not the stairs are down or whatever. Uh, but but some situations that people are beginning to uncover with these uh, begin to to say, my goodness, uh, just 
just having uh, what uh, what uh, some folks are talking about, uh, data-driven, deep learning, machine learning, and all this stuff on this. Uh, when you don't really understand the, the, the whys uh, of it um, are, are really uh, challenging. Uh, uh, a few years back with one of my graduate students, Chen Yi Chen, when we were really, I guess, um, um, doing the beginning of using uh, virtual uh, reality data to, to train networks um, uh, to, to do driving, you know, there's a so-called end-to-end network which, which you train in which the output just is, you know, the three things that you can do when you're driving. You can turn the steering wheel, you can hit the brake, or you can hit the gas. Uh, and, and, you know, we could just never get stable uh, in, uh, outputs of, of such a things in, in simulation. Uh, but if we sort of did uh, a, 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 a network that, that was generating what we would call um, uh, the uh, the affordances, the the physical representations of the of the driving environment, uh, where you are relative to the edges that it detected, uh, how far back you are from the car ahead of you, is there a car to the side of you, and these kinds of things, and then using that in a control system. Um, then we would get much better performance, and the, of course, the the to us the obvious advantage of doing doing the, the, the doing it the second way is is that then we could we could understand the output that it was giving us in terms of things that we understand uh, as inputs to then what we do to to stay in the lane and not crash, as opposed to oh my goodness it just told us the uh, turn the steering wheel to the right, and we have no idea where in hell that came from. And, and, and so, you know, there are these issues that that abound in many of these um, uh, so-called deep learning AI approaches um, to the problem. So, um, uh, yes, we've made a lot of progress in recognizing whether or not it's a dog or or, or a cat. Uh, but even in things that we ran into with respect to recognition of stop signs, in some sense, um, you know, we we may not even recognize a stop sign as we approach a stop sign. We re- recognize the context in which a stop sign is contained, and then basically that context ends up suggesting that there's a stop sign and we better slow up. And and so all of these sorts of elements are really not con- not contained in in any of these approaches. So, yes, there's a lot of discussion to have in those particular areas. And unfortunately, uh, uh, we didn't get there this year. Let's get there yeah. next year. Yeah. One one last thing on this uh, the, the this Boeing crash is something that I'm going to be. I'm going to be writing about in the next issue. Um, it is directly related to everything that we're doing in the in the automobile industry. The fact is that that the systems that are used for driving cars without humans are based on sensors, and there are all kinds of sensors that deliver the the information that's necessary or the data that's necessary to create a result that a computer robot someone's uh, system operating without human involvement will make decisions on. And sensors are not infallible. They break. 
in the case of the boat with a Boeing that, that landed in the ocean, if they freeze, um, we can't we can't depend 100% on sensors that will always do their job. Yeah, and, and, if, and, and if, if we although, if, although in the Boeing situation, my goodness, if one looks at the design of the autopilot and, and or the design of that system, and 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 what they didn't do, I mean, you know, in in the in the uh, line air crash. Um, in fact, uh, you know, you, you have two angle of attack sensors. Um, uh, the two sensors, are, one's on one side of the fuselage, the other one's on the other side. One's giving you one value, the other one's giving you another value. Nowhere in the system they designed, they compare those values, first of all. Secondly, as the thing is taxiing down the runway, one of the sensors is showing zero degrees angle of attack. The other one is showing something like 10 degrees angle of attack. There's no logic put into that system that says, oh, my goodness, we're going down the runway. I wonder what the angle of attack should be as we're going down the runway. Oh, uh, zero degrees or something close to zero. I mean, there should have been alarms. And then, and then in the Max 8, the Norwegian Airlines, Norwegian Air actually sent out an email saying they chose not to t get the extra added um, uh, feature that was an extra added feature that Boeing of a, of a, um, of a uh, light uh, that would indicate the, and, and compare the angle of attack of one sensor value with the other one and turn on uh, if uh, if they disagreed to warn the pilots and one has to say oh my goodness you know how much must must that like cost i mean how did and they claim they didn't do it because no regulatory agency in europe uh, required them to do that and nobody else was buying it but in fact probably the reason why they did it is because if Boeing were to put that that uh, light on the display uh, panel that had been that is now screens instead of the normal um, uh, um, analog displays, um, then that would have rendered the cockpit sufficiently different from a normal 737, such that Norwegian Airline would have had to their pilots and put them in simulators so in fact the probable reason why they chose not to do that is not because of the extra cost of the safety thing is because of the extra costs associated with the extra training that the pilots might have but of course they didn't say that but that's complete speculation on my part so any of the <laughs> listeners did yeah. you know I blah, blah, blah. but think about it <laughs> I, I think, I, think <laughs> I did read that there was a price tag of something like thirty thousand dollars the future i mean jesus i mean can you imagine <laughs> write some code and put it this i mean if you t tell that to any any tesla person who's like uh you know doing this uh, doing uh, any um uh, displays on on the on the screen in a tesla and they say thirty thousand dollars for that they might they like go nuts i mean are you kidding <laughs> whatever um I, uh, what hey you know <laughs> Redundancy, uh, autopilots were designed when? 50 years ago or something like that? 
And, and in fact, if one looks at the, at the redundancy situation and the fact that autopilots, they have two systems running, you know, and, and uh, those systems don't talk to each other. And, um, and uh, the one is, is running in case the other one breaks down. Well, you know, that was kind of good when we were dealing with analog circuits and things like that. When one's dealing in the, in the digital world, oh, my goodness. I mean, I don't think anybody would design a system like that. So I don't know. Um, we all think that the airline industry is, is so up to speed. But, but um, of all the discussions we had at the conference with respect to standards and so on, can you imagine what must exist with respect to the to the displays and, the, and any control system you put in an airplane? What kind of... I don't know. Whatever. No wonder the FAA can't can't uh, uh, requires industry to figure out what's going on because you know how would you have enough enough people that are up to speed enough to to understand all that stuff? Anyway, I don't know. It's well, tough though. Moving on here, uh, session four, uh, Michael was titled "The Deployment of Automated Mobility Services," and I suppose that ties into something else that you talk about in the dispatcher the new edition, uh, taking a look at what's going on with Voyage and driverless mobility service in the Village's retirement community down in Florida. Well, that, that's, where, uh, that's where I thought it might, it might lead, but the, that session was specifically uh, allocated to, um, say, the public sector. Um, we, we normally would have, in, I mean, in, in past conferences, there have been three, three sessions and We'd sprinkle into each one of the sessions something related to to the the folks who who are working in the in the public sector. This one's given to specifically given to people working in like the like uh, transport for London and and people working in the Commission. And um, I had thought that it that it would focus a bit more on what's really happening in our cities today with, with buses and competing with scooters. I don't know if you're seeing that as much, as much as we're seeing it here, but I mean, the, the proliferation of scooters in, in Stockholm is just, it's gone crazy. We've got four companies now um, that are delivering scooters and they're all over the place. And so combined with, with the bicycles and now uh, um, battery operated bicycles um, taking up space on the street, and really competing with public transportation. And we did discuss it a bit. I mean, in, in an exchange uh, directly, uh, Alan was sitting next to me and we were kind of communicating with the, with the panel as they were presenting. Um, but one of the things that, that was that was said, which really has nothing to do with, with mobility or, or public sector, was that someone, one of the panelists said that we, you know, that we're using this, this, fact as a fact that 90% or 95% often of the accidents that occur are attributable to human beings. Um, and I've always had trouble with that because I mean, there's so many things that happen when an accident occurs um, that you can't say that, that, you know, it's the human, the human factor that's, that caused that. If you take the human out of it, then you're going to have 90% of those accidents aren't, aren't going to happen anymore. So that, that was one of the, I think the main points that came out of the discussion, but I think there again, that, that uh, for next year, a little bit more of a focus on, on where, where is the transport, public transport really going, particularly in cities, what's, what's happening to buses, 
how are how are buses and and undergrounds and and uh, bicycles and scooters and all of these other how are they working together or are we at a point right now where we're just going to have to throw all the cards up in the air and, and see where they fall and eventually try to pick them up and put them put some order to it i think um yeah I, it was it was at the end of the day and i think there were a number of people were were just listening also the, the main difference with that session was that there were presentations that were given as opposed to the panel discussion and i think that's an, that's an important point to make to uh, to our listeners to your listeners um this the uh, itu future network car is a panel format so the three the three sessions before this were all uh, with panels moderated questions and real discussion that goes on went on between the, the panelists and also between the panelists and the the uh, participants and the 200 people sitting in the audience. Um, so I, I think that that's the, the main difference between the, this conference and any of the other conferences that we have. Interesting. And you did uh, talk about in in your new edition of the Dispatcher, though the what is going on down in, in Florida in the villages with, with Voyage. Tell us a little bit yeah. about that. Well, I think that that's, it's a, it's a, it's a good place if you're going to, to try to implement a, in a controlled environment where you've got, everybody is pretty much the same age. They've all got, you know, walking around or driving around at about the same speed. You own the roads. Um, and if you, you can provide a a solution to mobility where people who may continue to want to drive their cars but need a little extra help. Uh, and this is a this is a really good way of testing it. So I think that the concept of putting more self driving and, and more assisted driving into a a community where people are more uh, tend to be uh, up up in age. Um, it's, it's a it's a good way of, of well, let's say it's it's a good opportunity to to provide both both a service and to test the concept of self driving um, in in a more safe way. You know, you don't have lots of people zooming around in in, uh, in cars, and you can give you can put people in in safe cars as opposed to having people driving around in in um, golf carts. Which are are not the safest, even though you know you don't you don't have the same kind of weather conditions as you would have up in the Northeast or or up in the you know Wisconsin in the wintertime. Um, I, I lived in in Orlando for two years before making the move over to, to Sweden, and um, except for the, the thunderstorms at five o'clock every day, you know, you, the main problem you had there was it was just so hot. The, that walking around wasn't a possibility. So I think that's another another issue. Even if you, you are mobile and you can walk around, it's so hot down there that, that you really do want to be in an air-conditioned uh, car. And I, and I think if you can't drive, but you would like to be able to drive, I think it's a, it's a good opportunity to test the concept of, of self-driving. Yeah, I agree, Michael. I think what Voyage is doing in both uh, in both San Jose and, uh, villages and in the, in the villages in Florida is is really important. And I think, you know, we're we're so so at the very beginning of this, and and what we should do is really uh, do 
much as we can in the places where where it, it both is easiest and can can deliver the biggest value. And and certainly um, uh, those two communities uh, um, uh, fit that in in, in spades, and and so therefore, uh, it's really good. And, and and as we learn and as we make it better, as it improves, I think it, it you know then then we can <clears throat> begin to leak out into into other realms. You know, I'm still I'm still very focused at trying to actually bring this to the streets of Princeton and basically. Have it operate in in um, in in the streets, the 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 25 mile an hour streets. Uh, one of the things that we're really trying to do here in Princeton is, of course, make everybody uh, obey the darn speed limits. So I, I think one of the things that we're about to put in in the newspaper in the police blotter, where we've used to list the or can list the people that get DWIs or smoke pot that get arrested and so on. We're not going to start listing the people who get speeding tickets and, and how fast they were going, again, to try to to embarrass the community into, into adhering to the speed limits. And, in fact, I'm trying to get the town to buy, you know, these, um, these uh, speed cameras uh, that record your license plate, but instead of sending you a um, a um, a ticket uh, and making money off of it, just listing um, the top ten violators of the speed limits um, in Princeton every week in the weekly newspaper. And now, for visitors, maybe they won't know about this, but I think at least the community will will stop speeding around. <clears throat> And then once we have the, the people driving at 25 miles an hour or so around Princeton, the town's not big, then maybe we can actually bring some of these uh, driverless mobility services in so that the people who don't uh, have either access to a car or, or, or are not able to drive a car for one reason or another but, but can still um, uh, uh, use and, 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 and participate in a ride can have the mobility that the rest of us uh, um, have available to us because we happen to have one of these cars attached to our hip all the time. So that's really what I'm focused on, and, um, and uh, maybe this leads into our next discussion, but that's what I intend to have a major part of the, of the summit uh, that uh, that we're uh, having um, at Princeton in in the middle of May. Um, uh, we're also going to. Uh, I got the university to to agree, and and be on board to uh, <clears throat> for us to do demonstrations here in New Jersey. Nobody's ever seen one of these things. Nobody's even you know had had the opportunity to kick kick the tires. So uh, you know we're going to set up a demonstration area where. At least some people from the mobility disadvantaged community and and the people that that support that community can can begin to uh, take a look at at some of these um, mobility opportunities to see if in fact uh, uh, they can do a better job of getting people around than getting a paratransit ride from New Jersey Transit that costs New Jersey Transit I don't know sixty five bucks a ride or something to deliver and you have to wait around all day and who I mean it's just terrible service so uh, anyway that's that's kind of where we're going. And as you said, uh, Alan, that's just uh, about a month and a half away now, the Smart Driving Car Summit. And the focus that you're talking about is really going to open up a lot of eyes. People, the perception of of this technology and, and where it's going is 
pretty much in the opposite direction, and you'll be opening eyes. Yeah, I think uh, I think look uh, um, to develop these things to give me mobility. Uh, you know, it's going to improve my life. Uh, you know, uh, epsilon. You know, very little. Um, uh, but but my goodness, uh, what I've been uh, especially learning lately about uh, communities. Uh, you know, in New Jersey, we have a a low income housing uh, requirement of every community. But guess where every community locates its low income housing? It locates it in. Um, in, in cheap land. Uh, why is that land cheap? It's because it's not near anything and it has no accessibility. And so, of course, now we, we basically uh, stick these people out there where hey, hey, the rent might be cheap, but you, you have to have a car to go get a, a quart of milk. Uh, so, uh, you know, as I like to say, um, um, uh, cheap housing plus expensive mobility does not uh, lead to inexpensive living. And so uh, having maybe an opportunity uh, to provide mobility um, in a way uh, with these mobility machines in a restricted environment, but that environment includes being able to go to the library, being able to go to the Princeton Shopping Center, being able to to go to some of the schools, being able to go to 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 some of the clinics or some of the doctors' offices, and and maybe even go to some of the shops, uh, all within the community. You know, forget going out on the New Jersey Turnpike or going on the on the autobahn at 450 miles an hour or however fast they drive there. I mean, let's get it started in places where, in fact, it can really enhance the quality of life. Of, of 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 individuals that have really been left behind by uh, uh, by our auto bonds and and so that's I guess uh, um, uh, that's what I'm uh, I'm focused on and that's what we're going to try to in part uh, talk about and, and discuss uh, and demonstrate at um, at the summit in the middle of May. And for more information, people can go to smartdrivingcar.com. All the information you need about the summit is there. And that is it for this edition. We want to thank Michael Senna for joining us. Great to have you with us again, Michael. My pleasure. Great to, great to be here again. Always great to have you. And you'll be at the summit, and you're supposed to handle the European views. <laughs> um, gearing up for it, Alan. Looking forward to it. Yes, and, and we're looking uh, very forward to having you uh, join us. And, of course, you'll be at Princeton for your how many is three? Oh, goodness. It's, oh, it's goodness. my 50th. Oh, <laughs> isn't that wonderful? That's <laughs> yeah, a big 5-0. Big 5-0. Yeah, you aren't even fifty years old, are you, Michael? When when, (laughs) you graduated, you were still in the womb when you graduated from Princeton, Michael. Yeah, Yeah. it's not only the president who's got the ability to to start school so early. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it'll be great having you again, and uh, we look forward to it, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Great having you. Well, you can find us uh, again at uh, smartdrivingcar.com on Anchor FM, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple, Google, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and wherever you get your podcast. Ask your smart speaker to play us too. You can find my tech reports at textination.com. 
I'm Fred Fishkin along with Alan Kornhauser. Thank you for listening.